Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Monday, December 12th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris on this episode. We will discuss the flurry of activity that has taken place since our episode last week. Basically, everything that has happened since the breaking news of Trey Turner going to Philadelphia at the end of our last episode. So we got lots of pitchers on the move, a few other position players to get to, uh, one major heel turn, a couple of news items to sprinkle in. And if we have time, if we have time, a couple of mailbag questions queued up for at the end of the show as well. You know, how's it going for you on this Monday? It's good. Nice uh, little little like one day break after the winter meetings, uh, which were rough on me. <laughs> I got sick while I was there, uh, lost my voice on the first night and didn't get to spend as much time in the awesome, awesome bar scene uh, that is the winter meetings. But uh, I'm happy to see who I saw. And if I missed you while I was there, I was going to bed early and being responsible, drinking lots of water. You'll get back to San Diego, and uh, there right. will be—I'll be there around. There'll be more gatherings. <laughs> there you go. You get another crack at it in just a few weeks, so uh, that definitely helps. Let's get to the news. Kodai Singa has landed with the Mets, and we were wondering when we looked at this team after they replaced Jacob Degrom with Justin Verlander. How would they round out the rotation? It seemed like they were one starter short. In fact, I think it was Owen Poindexter who's tweeting on uh, last week, and we were going back and forth a little bit. And I said, I think Tyler McGill is like really important for them as they're currently constructed. The addition of Senga really reduces the importance of McGill. At least kind of pushes him into that swing role. At least for now, maybe makes him more of an extra arm. And certainly with all the injuries that pile up over the course of the season, he could still end up being important. But five years. $75 million with an opt-out after year three. The nuts and bolts of the scouting report, pretty big fastball in terms of velocity, good splitter, but control concerns. So the main question here is, what sort of expectation should we have for Senga making the move from NPB in Japan over to Major League Baseball in 2023? Yeah, I mean, what you can do is try to put him in the context of his peers uh, statistically, um, you know, other players that have come over and, um, you know, some of the warning signs that were there for Daisuke Matsuzaka, um, you know, are not there for Kodai Sengo. When Daisuke Matsuzaka came over, uh, he had like a 295 career ERA in Japan. Um, you know, uh, uh, somebody like Hugh Darvish is, uh, was much closer uh, to two. Uh, he had a uh, two, what is this? Uh, a 199 ERA in Japan. Uh, just to give you sort of, uh, that, that's one of the best and one of the worst outcomes, right? <laughs> of a pitcher that's come over. Uh, so ERA is not everything alone, uh, but then you can sort of poke uh, a little bit at uh, Kodai Senga's walk rates, and there's some similarity to Yu Darvish's walk rates. So maybe uh, he's not uh, you know, a plus-plus command guy. Uh, when he first comes over, especially because they'll be ch he'll be changing balls. You know, he'll be going from a pre-tacked ball to one with different seams. Uh, something that uh, Masahiro Tanaka talked about a lot when he came over was the difference in his splitter when he came over. That's interesting because Senga's best pitch is called the ghost fork. Uh, <laughs> so I'd have to think that actually... Um, that'll that'll pour it over. I mean, Tanaka's splitter got better when he came over. So 
Uh, I'm hoping the same for Senga. The big question for me is the fastball, because we've even seen with you Darvish. You Darvish came over with some of the best fastball below uh, in the non-Shohei Otani category. Um, and yet he doesn't emphasize his fastball, right? Like he's not really a fat, like his fastball gets hit pretty hard and it's not his best pitch. It's, you know, it's more of a, the cutter has been, you know, his fastball now, quote unquote. So, um, there's been some inconsistent reports. I know I've heard some people say he has his fastball is plus shape and I've heard other people say it does not have plus shape. So I would say a good velo shape on the fastball to be considered uh, non uh, change up secondaries to be considered um, in terms of sort of American pitchers. You've got the range of sort of Kevin Gaussman, uh, Frankie Montas, Frankie Montas. That's those are some names that are in that space. Good velo. Uh, the amount of command he has is a little bit of a separator between Montas and uh, and Gaussman. But if you had Montas in one of the easier, one of the better stadiums for a pitcher to pitch in. Uh, right now, which is New York. Uh, that's a pretty good pitcher. You know, I tried to, I was throwing darts because uh, when I did my rankings, I did not know where he would end up. Uh, I put him in the low, in the low 40s. Uh, and I don't know, maybe I'd move him up to like 45, you know, 42. I don't know, I'm throwing numbers out there, but you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, pretty good pitcher and uh, may produce more than his draft cost. So definitely somebody I'd be interested in. Yeah, the earlier draft season ADP was kind of on the fringes of the top 300. He'll move up. He's on a good team in a great park, so that's obviously going to draw uh, plenty of interest. I think he'll easily push inside the top 200 overall and maybe even as high as the top 150, depending on how things go for him during the spring. I do think there's a fair would-you-rather with Senga versus Frankie Montas. Montas doesn't have the benefit of that park, right? He's lined up to be in Yankee Stadium for half his starts over a full season. We just saw health what issues. Montas could do in the damp basement. Both of these guys have some health issues. Senga missed time, I believe, twice in 2022 with an arm issue. Had an ankle injury a couple of years ago that cost him a lot of time. Mostly healthy. Oh, look at that. I have Montas 42 and Senga 49 before he went to New York. That's a yeah, really that's see? a really good <laughs> would you rather. Well done. Uh, I'm going to say I would rather Senga. I think I, I love that the promise of the unknown, um, but uh, above him, it gets tricky when you're in the late thirties. There's a lot of really good pitchers. Uh, Nestor Cortez, you know, Logan Gilbert, Nick Lodolo, Tristan McKenzie. Those are guys I have in my late thirties. And I don't know if I really want to push Kodai ahead of that. So he's he's uh, he's gonna he's gonna land at like forty two forty three right in there. I saw our friend Vlad Sedler lamenting uh, how much he doesn't like I believe it's the hitters after the first two rounds, and I saw someone else on that tweet jump in and say outfield's never been worse. And I started thinking about those comments while looking at pitcher rankings because I kept thinking the same thing you were just saying where. I'm looking at this group of 30, 40, 50 range pitchers. I'm like, these guys are good. I like all these guys for the mm-hmm. most part. I'm actually happy to have a big group of this as my core starters. If I only had one guy above this group and then I had five out of this 30 to 60 cluster, I might actually have a rotation that I feel really good about. I wonder how much of that's just the nature of maybe all of us doing a poor job of recalibrating for 
an offensive environment that was not as power friendly in 2022, right? That is a natural that is a natural reaction, right? To to what happened last year in terms of the dead or ball. A natural mm-hmm. reaction would be to push uh, mid-range hitters up and uh and, and you know, just to sort of go to quantity uh, the quantity approach uh, for your mid-range pitchers, you know, just take the guys as they fall. You know, if you've got, uh, you know, I've got Hunter Green 32nd, which is maybe fairly aggressive, but his projection is good and the stuff number is through the roof. And, you know, maybe he falls or maybe it's, uh, you know, somebody, Nick Lodolo, who I have uh, 36th, you know, doesn't get as much pub as the other guy. Maybe he falls. His his projection is actually better than Hunter Green's in Steamer right now. So you know, just uh, just grab them as they fall. I think um, is a good way to to approach the middle because there are way more names there that I like. And you know, I could see looking at you know the thirty fifth best outfielder and being like, oh man, it's already already got to this. Right. But I don't think that player is worse. I just think the line for that player is worse because of the environment. Yeah. It shifted everyone down and it elevated a lot of pitchers. So it's just we're being tricked. We're being tricked by mm. the changes in the environment. At least that's, well, that's yeah, what I, I mean. You have to happening. adjust. The question is how much you adjust ahead of the new rule changes. Uh, just for uh, reference sake. Uh, you know, here we go. This, this is, uh, an example of similar pitchers. Cause I just rattle off a, a few names of pitchers I have ranked between 30 and 40. Uh, so among outfielders, uh, between 30 and 40, um, you've got Hunter Renfro, uh, Oscar Gonzalez, uh, this is by the the projection uh, on the uh, on the uh, Fangraphs auction calculator. Seth Brown, um, Jock Peterson. I don't know. I prefer the pitchers in that range. I'd want to stay. I want to stay out of that. I want more as many top thirty outfielders as I can. <laughs> yeah. So maybe uh, outfielders early will be part of the approach this year if the outfield does in fact fall off worse than it has uh, in the past. But uh, I think Singa probably ends up somewhere in that 40 to 50 range for starting pitchers on a lot of people's lists, maybe creeps up a little bit higher again, depending on what happens over the course of February and March. A lot of other free agent deals for pitchers. We'll kind of run through these somewhat rapid fire. Andrew Heaney landed in Texas. We know the skills are good. It's just a question of, well, most of the skills are good. There's a home run problem that's been there kind of forever. It's a question of health. But I think, as we said on the 3-0 show, Andrew Heaney fits right into that mid-tier free agent level where the Rangers have done very well in recent years. It seems like they have some kind of organizational skill of properly identifying quality pitchers that are available in that range. Yeah, I think the uh, main thing for Haney is to maybe emphasize if there is like upside beyond what we've seen, uh, and he had a pretty good year uh, with the with the Dodgers and, and and found something in the slider. And it, it's funny because people were talking about him throwing a sweeper. He found something in the slider by reducing the horizontal movement, but I think he found an angle that really worked for him because he's kind of a low slung guy that uh, pitches off the edge of the rubber there. 
Um, so I think, you know, the fastball sliders as a mix, I think the home run problem what we've seen is that he's predictable. You know, he throws a lot of forcing fastballs. Um, and then if it's not a forcing fastball, it's almost always a slider. So I think, you know, Stuff Plus says his changeup is above average. It's gotten decent results. He doesn't necessarily command it that well, but uh, I think putting the changeup back on the table could be a little bit of a source of uh, upside for him where it could just help him, you know, just reduce a few of those homers. And, you know, there is another level for Andrew Haney. Yeah, I think getting off the fastball would be huge. Getting that number down... 50% 50% maybe for usage instead of 62.5. Maybe that's the ultimate goal, even if that comes with a few more sliders and then, like you said, the changeup or, or something else. Man, you could talk about a guy that could do If you could find some other fastball, if he had two fastballs, maybe that would help. I also. mean, in a good year, he gave up 1.7 homers per nine. Like, he's definitely still pretty homer prone. Mm-hmm. But really nice skills outside of that. I like this fit. feel like in terms of the, the money and the years and everything, that all makes sense to me. I think... He'll probably tick up a little bit in terms of ADP, given that uh, the ballpark, new ballpark in Arlington plays pretty close to neutral. And the rumor was that Texas has more you know, going on. So if they improve that lineup a little bit more, you're talking about a team that seems to have a green arrow next to its name. I think they're going to get a corner outfield bat to help bolster that lineup. Uh, we saw Sean Manaya land with the Giants, which just, Makes a lot of sense. I mean, maybe it's because he spent so much time in Oakland, so he's back in the Bay Area. Maybe it's because they don't really seem to worry too much about high injury risk pitchers. Although I think Benaya, relative to the early career concerns about his health, has been more durable than expected You know, com- compared to where he was when he entered the league. Uh, but again, a similar sort of deal to what Haney got with the Rangers. So curious what you think about this fit, because in general... Pitchers with decent skills landing in Oracle Park tend to be very reliable for us in our game. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a great place for him to land. Uh, I think there is maybe something when it comes to the Giants and sinkers. Um, you know, Alex Wood was a you know a signing of theirs. Uh, they added a sinker to Camilo Duvall. Logan Webb uh, took a real big step forward when he uh, you know featured the sinker more than the four seamer. Um, and I know that in our stuff plus model, as we've done the research sinkers have sometimes been a little bit squirrely where we've been like, are these, are these stuff numbers really matching up to the best sinkers in the game? Um, so there might still be a little bit, you know, almost every team now has, I think everything has a stuff plus number. There's a question of how much they listen to it and how good it is. Like there is still a difference in how good, uh, those team stuff plus numbers are. And I know uh, that changeups and sinkers are a part of that discussion. Which stuff plus numbers are really good at nailing those downs? Maybe the Giants feel like theirs is good in that way. And if that's the case, uh, because it's kind of important because Shamanaya's changeup, the way in our model, looks uh, slightly below average. I mean, his fastball looks slightly below average, right? His sinker looks okay, you know? And, um, and what I would focus on from our model perspective is that his slider and changeup fat flashed plus last year. So I would say, Oh, you know, when his slider was harder, when he was throwing it, uh, you know, harder, that was, that was when his slider was at its best. And when his changeup was dropping the most, that's when that was at its best. Now try to get him to replicate those pitches. Uh, that's what my model would say. But if their model says the sinker is actually above average because of its good shape, 
then they're acting from a better position of strength, right? Like they're saying, this is a good pitcher and maybe we can tweak these things and make him better. But no matter what, he'll still be worth, you know, $12 million a year. I think that's probably true. Like Shamanai, $12 million a year is now almost the cost of, you know, your number four or five, you know, and can he can be a five for anybody. Yeah, you look at the, the skills over the last two seasons combined, 18.2% strikeout minus walk rate. I mean, that's in line with Max Freed, same as Pablo Lopez, same as Tarek Skubal, just a tick ahead of Tyler Malley and Tristan McKenzie, Frankie Montas, Sandy Alcantara. Doesn't mean he is better or equal to those guys, but the home run problem, kind of similar to Heaney. Oracle Park should help soften that or keep it from getting a lot worse. Surprisingly, a 440 ERA for Sean Manaya over the last two seasons combined. All of your ERA estimators come in lower than that. So definitely um, some tweaks that could be made here that might make it possible for him to to get to those numbers. And I guess looking at the board, comparing him to even Singa, if you're looking at Manaya versus Singa, is that a fair toss-up? Are they in the same tier for you? I think I'd pretty pretty clearly rather have uh, Senga. Uh, I have... Wow, I did not have Shamanaya in my top 125. Well, that might be a mistake in the rear view mirror. Um, but the stuff plus number is so bad, I, it, I didn't have a reason to, to push him in there. And his pitching plus was below average. This is a really good landing spot for him, though, right? <laughs> this is definitely something that could push him pretty hard. I, I'll, let's say I had, uh, I, it was a mistake of mine, I should have had him around... Uh, he should have been at least above like a sunny gray Zach Eflin or at least near them, right? Yes, I think at least there. I have sunny gray at 60 right now. And these are still like unfinished uh-huh. ranks. Pablo Lopez at 50. I do think Lopez is a fair comp. Even looking at the model, some of the numbers from your pitching model are kind of close, actually. Yeah, but the model is low on Lopez compared to yeah. what he's done on the field, whereas they're high compared to what Manaya's done on the field. So it's a weird, weird comp there. But I think Manaya is a, he's a good reason to not draft Pablo Lopez around pick 150 if you can get Manaya 50 or 75 or even 100 picks later, potentially. If he yeah. stays in the 200 to 250 range, I think he's totally viable there because I think Manaya will be useful for pretty much all of his home starts and even a decent number of road starts as well. You'll avoid him on the road against the Dodgers, probably avoid him at least in day games against the Padres. I think one of the park factors things that I want to drill into at some point in the future is day game versus night game because I just think the air is so different in San Diego. The temperatures are a lot different if you're playing at 1 o'clock in the afternoon versus 7 o'clock at night. And I think that has a, a at least a meaningful impact on some of the borderline pitchers that you'd think about using against the Padres. Day, day games might be off limits. You got to get Ken Arneson in here too, because I'm sure the wind, uh, the the way the wind, the wind patterns work uh, very differently a day and night. You just think about it. I mean, the whole way wind works is, uh, you know, the temperature on land and the temperature in the water being different. And, you know, those, you know, land and water lose and gain temperature at different rates. So, of course, during the day, wind might have one totally different pattern than what it would at night. Um, so, yeah, I think those are those are good arguments for those. It's definitely also cold out here. <laughs> they call it California. Everyone thinks it's all warm. But uh, you sit in a ballpark at night in San Diego or Oakland or San Francisco and you realize how cold it can get up here. <laughs> The proper word is 
cool. Cool. It is cool. <laughs> it is not cold. <laughs> I can speak to cold. I could not previously speak to cool. Yeah. And now that I've lived here for a year, almost a year and a half, cool is exactly what it is. Because there, there's something strange when it's about 50 degrees and it's kind of humid and it somehow chills you to the bone not all that differently than like 20 degrees with a nasty wind. You still feel it. And you're like, why do I feel so cold right now? There is something unique about that. But I'm going to say that's cool. Mm-hmm. That's a cool temperature. Legitimately yeah. cool. I've I've settled in with him maybe in the late 70s around like a Marcus Stroman, Jameson Tyon, Kenta Maeda, Ross Stripling, Merrill Kelly. You know, good fungible veterans. Yeah, Maeda, a bit of a forgotten guy right now as he makes his return from a Tommy John surgery, but I could see that being a pretty nice late-round value since he should have a pretty normal progression over the course of this winter. Missed all of last year. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Three other veteran potential starters landed in new places. I mean, Jose Quintana is going to be a starter with the Mets, so he's not a potential starter. But Kyle Gibson and Vince Velasquez landing with the Orioles and Pirates, respectively. As those three teams kind of added rotation depth, or in the case maybe of, of Pittsburgh, someone that's a little more part, big part of their plans in the short term at least, uh, do you like any of those particular guys maybe as overlooked additions? Yeah, I've had uh, Vince Velasquez on my sort of uh, personal crib sheet of possibly <laughs> cheap, undervalued starters that might be interesting. Um, you know, his uh, he he's like... He was like one of the very few free agent pitchers that could be a starter that had an above average fastball stuff plus. You know what I mean? Like that's uh it's something that is kind of rare among starters to begin with. They're they're not, you know, a lot of them are not known for their fastballs and it's definitely harder to have a, an above average stuff plus for a fastball when you're in the free agent category, you know, it's your post peak. Now, obviously, DeGrom had one, you know, <laughs> like the top of the the top of the line guys have uh, that. But Justin Verlander didn't, you know, uh, and Vince Velasquez did have an above average stuff loss on the four seam fastball. So that's a good foundation, I think. And then when you kind of look among his different pitches, you see pitches that are rated well for for stuff, but not for command. And that's that's the Vince Velasquez we know and love. Um, but uh, no in maybe love <laughs> but uh i would uh i i i see a lot of opportunity there one thing i just like uh there were other couple of players on uh that part of the crib sheet like matthew boyd and 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 um michael lorenzen that were just there because they had many pitches and they'd made some minor tweaks to those pitches in the past year like for example michael lorenzen added a sweeper and, uh, for example, Matt Boyd changed uh, the action on his changeup last season. So with Vince Velasquez, I'd just be looking to tweak one of his pitches. He has the type of fastball that you could add a sweeper to. <laughs> the problem is 
Velasquez doesn't command his pitches that well. So adding another pitch with great, great action and not great uh, command might not help him. So maybe it's more you add a cutter, something that he can actually command well that's not just his four seam. So uh, I just see an opportunity there in pitches. He has a bunch of pitches. Some of them are good by stuff. Some of them are good by location. There's got to be a good mix in there. I think there's something that you can pry out of Vince Velasquez. Yeah, I thought it was worth mentioning, if only because he has more to work with in terms of stuff than Jose Quintana did. And it was Quintana that went to Pittsburgh around this time a year ago and ended up being a a nice move for the Pirates. They flipped him to the Cardinals, and now he was actually a coveted free agent this offseason. So maybe something similar uh, could develop with Velasquez if they make a couple of adjustments. And we're at the point with him now, he's 30 years old. If it doesn't work out over the first two months as a starter, you can flip the switch in June, make him a short reliever, and maybe you've got a coveted high-leverage reliever that you you brought in. I mean, I think that's still in there for him because then it doesn't matter as much which pitches he can't command. A lot of those just go away, right? Then he becomes a four-seam slider guy, and both of those pitches were above average across the board, you know? Yeah. And and then maybe it goes a little bit more from a board above average to one of those pitches kind of starts you know, doing a little bit more elite stuff. So I definitely think he can be a reliever for somebody. Got a few relievers that landed on new teams. Kenley Jansen going to Boston is kind of like his own conversation, but Kenley Jansen goes to the Red Sox. Uh, Joe Jimenez was acquired by Atlanta. Carlos Estevez ends up in Anaheim getting out of Colorado. Never a bad thing for a pitcher. And then Matt Strom goes to Philadelphia. And I feel like my, my interest in Matt Strom has faded compared to where it was a few years ago. Still not a bad addition, though. With Kenley Jansen, are we going down the exact same path where because he's got a clear hold on a closer role, because the stuff last year was actually pretty good, he goes into our circle of trust for draft season, and then we wait until about August, and then we start having the the panic about whether or not he's going to keep the job, and if the Red Sox are uh, in line to possibly make the playoffs, are we going to be worried about whether or not he's um, going to be the guy for them even at the end of the season. Like, is this is this the actual plan that we have to follow every single year for Kenley Jansen? Yeah, the the added asterisk for me this year that makes it a little different than years be, be, uh, before where I have had some teams where I say, oh, I missed out on all the elite relievers. I'll take Kenley Jansen. Um, the thing that's a little different now is that he's one of the slowest relievers in baseball and there's going to be a pitch clock this year. So... It's just a little bit of added risk on top of it. And then, uh, you know, uh, he's joined uh, a bullpen where there are, you know, possible other people that can close. Uh, to my mind, uh, John Schreiber is someone that's always been a standout guy in the model, and he did fine when he was asked to close last year. Uh, and then Tanner Houck, you know, we'll, we'll see. There's some, like, you know, maybe he'll start, maybe he'll not. Garrett Whitlock, uh, they've been saying will be stretched out to start. How and and like will be a starter is is sort of the language I've heard, uh, you know, out of Boston. And whereas Tanner Houck is maybe he'll be stretched out to be a starter, uh, but uh, we don't know where he'll end up. So you know, I think Tanner Houck will end up in the bullpen. Um, and there's just a question of if there's uh, some slight sort of uh weaknesses towards lefties right um i think jansen and schreiber don't necessarily exhibit those weaknesses whereas hauk as a side arming guy who's a lot of sort of left to right action on his pitches um he he may have some trouble against lefties 
Yeah, I think for me, Jansen kind of firmly in that second group of closers. Uh, I'd, r- I'd much rather have one in front of him yeah. than have him be my first source of saves. Uh, but you could probably do worse if you waited on a closer. I think there's actually a little more job security than, than you've got forecasted right now. I think in part because, at least as the Red Sox stand right now, I think they need all of those guys that could be starters, could be relievers. They need them all in the rotation. They don't have good rotation depth right now. Maybe that changes if they add someone to replace Evaldi. Listed as their fifth right now, so I think you're right. So I think, though, you know, again, a free agent signing or two could add some competition, but I actually think it's a pretty good path in the first half for Jansen to be the guy. If he pitches well, probably keeps the job all year. Uh, Jimenez, I think, is just kind of behind Rysel Iglesias. Nice addition makes the bullpen deeper, but I don't know if there's anything outside of you know, saves and holds leagues or holds leagues to really be excited about there. And then Estevez to me is just an extra reliever for Anaheim that could make that bullpen a bit better, but not necessarily someone I expect to see like immediately in the mix for saves. Except that uh, in Anaheim, at least uh, is it obvious who is the closer? No, because Jimmy, no, heard. I I always want to say Herge, uh, Herget, <laughs> Jimmy Herget. Um, like was kind of headed towards there, but they were also uh, getting some saves. I remember this because I was trying to to figure it out late in the season last year. And every time I put Herget in, Tapera got a save. And every time I put Tapera in, Herget got a save. So I was pretty annoyed by that. I actually think Estevez uh, is the closer right now. And the reason I say this is, you know, when I look at his stuff plus numbers away from home, they were much better than they were at home. And so I bet they saw uh, something in that Coors can actually change your stuff plus numbers. And so he might have looked, you know, overall a little bit boring, but uh, away from home, he was putting up uh, 115s in the stuff plus uh, region. And that's like uh, other 115s. Um, that closed. Daniel Bard has a 116. Tanner Houck has the, a 116. John Schreiber is in the 116. Devin Williams had a 115. Um, you know, so there are some good pitchers right there. Jorge Lopez had a 114. So I think he could, I think he's probably the closer right now. Good news if you're in any of the early leagues, the Gladiator leagues or the draft and hold or anything like that. Because he's not going to cost a ton in drafts in the short term. They still have time to add more may, to that bullpen. Add, yeah. Who actually, of the remaining free agents, who stands out to you as a possible threat to come in and take saves from either Carlos Estevez or any anybody else who's in an unsettled ninth inning situation right now? Because there's certainly more than just Anaheim where you look and say, yeah, I guess... I guess it's this guy, but they're one move away from it being someone else. There's not that much out there still. Um, the Stuff Plus numbers still like Craig Kimbrell and said that it was just a bad year command-wise. Um, and so I could see him getting a one-year $10 million deal um, and uh, being put in the mix to close. I think if you have Kimbrell and uh, Carlos Estevez, you feel like, you know... I don't have to I don't have to just give it to Kimbrel. Maybe I tell Kimbrel he's the closer coming in, but maybe, you know, internally we say, hey, it could be either guy. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't see somebody where you're like, we signed this guy, he's definitely our closer. Closest is Kimbrel. Uh Taylor Rogers is out there. And um I think he had a real down year command wise because they were, you know, fiddling around with the slider. 
I think in a better year command wise, he will have a much better year next year. So I think Taylor Rogers and Keg Krimball are the only last two. But if that if I put either of those next to Carlos Estevez, um, I guess I would probably lean a little bit closer to Rogers and Kimbrell than Estevez. But um, I, I think it'd be maybe close to 50-50. You know, that'd be a, it'd be rough to try and draft into that situation because uh you don't know which one it's going to be but i'd have some shares late in in most of my drafts because that's what i do i have actually a, a good bit of faith in a taylor rogers rebound right I think exactly yeah. the home run issues he had last year especially after the trade to milwaukee were just absurd i think he could be fine he could still be a top 12 closer if he had a path to a job i would look at taylor rogers very similar to kenley jansen uh, but I do say that as as someone that would say it's worth taking a chance on on Carlos Estevez late right now because the way they used Aaron Loop last season, I know he was popping in the model a year ago. The way he was used makes me think they don't necessarily look at him as a clear cut ninth inning guy. They kind of like him as more of a high leverage mix and match guy in the bridge to the ninth inning. And he's a lefty Loop, right? So you know they're going to have uh, this year. There's going to be uh, a added need for lefties given the new shift rules you know lefties that can strike lefties out so that's something i think with loop where you know they you had this finding a while back that that teams used lefty lefties as closers about half as often as you'd expect and i that my theory was always they wanted to have a situational lefty and so you know i made it hard how many teams had two really good lefties where they could do that and I think we're going to return. There was a little bit of going away from that where there are teams like the Astros that just had righties, you know. But I would assume that, uh, you know, the the teams that teams are looking for lefties, you know, and they want to have situational lefties. You know, not necessarily you can't do the one out thing anymore, but if you have a, a couple of really important lefties coming up and you just can't have them, you know, getting on base, maybe with batters on, here comes Loop. And I don't think that that sends him up for closing. Let's move on to some of the other position player moves. Xander Bogarts ended up with the Padres. That was not something we would have expected a week ago. Uh, but knowing that they were pursuing Trey Turner, knowing that they may have even been pursuing Aaron Judge, uh, nothing's off limits right now as it stands for San Diego. Uh, I think there's been, with Bogarts, you know, some injuries he's played through that have reduced his in-game power that's complicated by the fact that he just turned 30 in October might be losing a little bit of power anyway with aging but I think they could actually get some seasons that still look a lot like what we saw between 2018 and 2020 where that slugging percentage gets back up over 500 again I think that's still on the table for Bogarts I love the plate skills I think you know over the life of the contract, maybe he moves off of shortstop, but you're not really worried about that right now. They said he's going to start the year at that position, and if there's something better they can do defensively, maybe they'll address that at some point in 2023. But um, I was looking at Bogarts already as a nice rebound candidate from a power perspective anyway. I think the counting stats would have come along with that, and now that he's landed in another really good lineup, I just think that increases the chances of everything falling back into place for him so long as he's healthy. Yeah, he's really interesting because uh, all of the the process stats that I use um, sort of suggest that this is an overpay for the the Padres and that he was maybe the fourth best shortstop on the board. 
like I'm getting to it. I know, I know. He's put up great batting averages and great OBPs, and he has great results. But I just have to point out that, like, you know, in terms of his his chase rate, he's you know 67th percentile. In terms of his barrel, he was 56th percentile. Uh, in terms of contact rate, swing strike rate, he's 37th percentile. His arm is 32nd percentile. His legs were 49th percentile. So, you know, across the board, he has weaknesses in, you know, how fast is he? How's he going to age according to his legs? His arm doesn't seem to be uh, of the strength that will keep him at shortstop for very long. Uh, And he doesn't stand out in terms of power and patience like a Carlos Correa does, you know, uh, who looks like a prototypical slugger um, who plays shortstop. Um, What I think is not caught there's two things that come to mind that are not caught by uh, these process stats perhaps sort of hit tool is not captured by swing strike rate and power you know that there's something in between there that's hit tool and i would assume that he has it uh because he's put up these high babips his career babip is 336 that's you know league average is like 296 so that's that's pretty good um you know you also have uh strikeout rates that are better than his contact rates that seems to me also kind of hit tooly where he's making contact where he needs to even though the overall contact rate is below average frankly that's one thing that comes to mind the other thing is he's played a very interesting ballpark um and if you just look at where his doubles were i mean last year he had i don't know 15 doubles off the wall in Venway off the monster yeah and uh so I wonder how that affects uh his batting average on balls in play and and what you think of him going forward and that's part of why even though he's projected to have a similar walk rate a similar strikeout rates and and a, and a little more power than he had last year he's still only and and an above average league league babbit he's still only projected to hit 267 next year um so Part of this is hit tool. Part of this is how he's meshed with his park. And those things, I think, have an outsized importance for him going forward since he's not a standout necessarily with the legs or with the power or with the patience. So that's why I have reservations about giving him 11 years um, where Trey Turner has the legs, I think, to age better than the general population. Um, and Cause Correa has the kind of power patience bat that uh seems like it'll age better than something where you're depending on a line drive stroke you're depending on base hits as opposed to you know walks and homers looking back i threw this on the screen if you're watching us on youtube the 2021 percentile rankings for bogart's 90th percentile in max exit velocity and that i think was with a little more health i wonder if I kind of, I'm buying into how you were describing hit tool and how that sort of explains some of the the differences in, in what you see in the underlying numbers versus what you see on the surface with Bogarts. I wonder if he might fit the the bill. We've talked about this with Freddie Freeman before, a hitter that can really change who he is. Like maybe mm. he can become someone that that sells out to get to more power as he ages, right? As as spraying the ball becomes more difficult. Maybe it will be a little or he more. Doesn't have the green monster. Maybe power. you know. Maybe he gets it over the over the wall. You know, instead of trying to pepper the wall. Yeah. So I mean, the you know the eleven years thing is just the the function of let's keep the AAV down. Let's just. That's what it took to get him to. You know, you just gotta. 
yeah, they, to me, this is, this is just more about like in these next three to five seasons, especially I see the skills, the underlying numbers here. And I, I see a guy that's still going to be a really good, if not great player for them. And I think they, they'll be uh, praised, I think, for the discount, at least in the early part of the deal, even if six years from now, people are laughing at them for it. Well, I mean, there's, there's been some long deals right now. Uh, the, the, to your argument, I think is very interesting. The last two years have been very different where in, um, 2021, he had the highest pull percentage of, of the last five years, uh, and the highest barrel rate of the last five years. And then in 2022, he had the lowest pull rate of the last five years and the lowest barrel rate. So that suggests a little bit to your argument that there's a little bit of variability here in approach and that he's shown basically that he can be successful in a different a couple different approaches how weird is it too that he was in the 88th percentile in outs above average in 2022 and he was in the first percentile in 2021 when i had that up on the screen 13th percentile back in 2020 fourth percentile in 2019 pretty big year for him defensively and i think it will take more to show us that that wasn't just a a one-year blip yeah it's true but you know, with below average arm and legs, uh, this is a, a player that I would expect to be uh, at third base within three years. Makes a lot of sense. Now, plenty of fans in Boston are upset right now that Bogarts is gone. Um, they have made a few additions. Masataka Yoshida cashes in with the Red Sox. Five years, $90 million. I think compared to what a lot of people out there had expected for a contract, it, it's a lot. That being said, when you start digging into what Yoshida was doing in Japan and trying to come up with an approximation of how the skills are going to translate making the move over to Major League Baseball, who do you think the Red Sox have? Like, Who currently in the MLB pool does Yoshida most resemble, at least on paper or in a spreadsheet? Yeah, I think... You know, one of the questions you always have with a hitter coming over is how the power is going to translate. Um, I think there's just... There's just m- massive differences between, especially with a guy with 15 to 20 homers like he's had. I think the the outcomes homer-wise in America are anywhere from 6 to 18. You know what I mean? <laughs> like He's either a guy who just randomly uh, hits one out and he had more opportunity against worse pitching in Japan to, to get those, like a mistake hitter, basically. Um, or he's a guy who has legitimate power uh, he did have a peak with uh, 29 homers one year in 2019, but I do know also that the ball was changing in Japan around that time. So, um, you know, he settled in mostly as like a sort of a 15 to 20 homer hitting guy. The standout part of his stats are his strikeout and walk rates. He had a 14% walk rate last year and a 7% strikeout rate last year. And you know where I'm going with this. Stephen Kwan had in triple a a 12 percent walk rate and a seven percent strikeout rate so i think he is somewhere between stephen kwan and alex bregman uh kwan works a little bit better because he's a corner outfielder but i think he showed plus defense so uh i think the worst case scenario is stephen kwan with a, a little bit less uh a little bit less defense stephen kwan was a four-win player last year so uh that's all-star level and uh, so we're talking about, I think, a floor of someone that is just below an all-star, like an above average regular, somebody who's two and a half to three wins. That's a sort of 
floor for someone who makes that much contact a lefty with no shift like i think that's a floor the upside is he has more bregman-esque power he won't necessarily have the defensive value of bregman but if he has bregman-esque power i think you're talking about someone who could have four to five wins so that's a that's a pretty good signing uh, even for a hundred million dollars yeah i think the the quan comp gives you a really safe floor if that's the player he is and that's how you draft him Okay, you're going to get tons of runs, good average, decent number of RBIs, depending on where he's at in the lineup. Maybe you're a little under in RBIs if he ends up being like a leadoff guy or at least a part-time leadoff guy. But that would be, I think, a pretty positive outcome at that AAV for the Red Sox if that is what they get. And room for more, like you said. I think the thing I would love to see is how hard was he hitting the ball in Japan? Was he already in the the lower end of the range for, for exit velo there, or was there actually a good bit of hard contact, even if you kind of soften that against better, more consistent pitching across the board, that gives you a little more optimism. Remember Fukudome came over, Kosuke Fukudome came over to the Reds, right? Or was Fukudome that the Cubs? Was That's the, the Cubs, Cubs guy. Yeah. Uh, Fukudome, who's the guy who came over to the Reds? Just, just happened. Shogo Akiyama. Akiyama, yep. Yeah, and I think there was a, a sense that they did not hit the ball that hard. And so I I guess if I'm being fully honest, I mean, you have to consider that part of the floor. Um, but I think he had more power than those two guys. Those guys were hitting like 10 homers at a time in, the, in, the, in, in Japan. Let me yeah. see. Uh, Shogo Akiyama. Akiyama stealing more bases in Japan too. Was that part of the part of the package that people were excited about when he signed? Well, see, Akiyama did have a 25 homer season in 2017 with with Seibu, uh, and some 20 homer seasons. But he also had some 13 homer seasons. He had a season where he had 484 plate appearances with five homers. Like uh, those are not seasons that uh, that Masataka uh, uh, Yoshida has had. So. The, the lower end uh, for him was lower. Uh, but, you know, that... I Okay, so that is something that has to be considered. However, Akiyama also struck out more, right? So what it would have, what it would have happened if Akiyama came in and was at least able to, uh, you know, put the ball in play all the time? You know, that's something to consider. And then Fukudome. Kosuke Fukudome. Let me see. In Japan... He was hitting, wow, he had a 34 homer season in Japan. Uh, but he settled in, wow, he had 13 homer, 15 homer seasons, but he had he had some 30 homer seasons in Japan. He also struck out more. So they're, they're betting on a different profile here. But Fukudome's 30 homer seasons translated to 10 homer seasons with his three first three seasons in Japan. Uh, Thirsty seasons, the Cubs, ten to thirteen. So really, the power is is the big question mark. Yeah, I, I think if you project him for eight to ten homers, that's probably a fair starting point, and you're hoping to get a lot of value in some of those other categories. Let's talk about Wilson Contreras, now a St. Louis Cardinal, which is just a strange thing to say out loud. Probably particularly painful if you are a Cubs fan. Very sorry to. Continued raining on your parade. I know I've been talking about this on a few different episodes in the last couple of days, but the 
The thing that I noticed with Wilson Contreras, I was just looking back at catchers over the last 20 or so years, went to fan graphs, threw up the leaderboard from 2000 forward, looked for the top 10 catchers by WRC+. Number one, Will Smith, 132 WRC+, probably an underrated player in the broader conversation, maybe not in fantasy circles, but definitely underrated just in terms of how people around real baseball talk about him. Buster Posey at 129. Jorge Posada, 127, Mike Piazza, 125, Joe Maurer, 123, Mitch Garver, 119, Mike Napoli, 119, Wilson Contreras, 118, and you got Victor Martinez and Yasmani Grandal at 117. I'd say Victor Martinez is actually a really funny name there because there have been people who sort of disparage Wilson Contreras' defense. You know, and Will, right. Victor Martinez was one of those players that did not have the greatest defense and it ended up transitioning to DH later in his career but had so much bat that he was still valuable. I think Contreras has enough bat to eventually make that move, but I also think he's you know, a good enough defensive catcher for the next three years at least to play most of his games behind the play. I think that's something you're talking about in year four or year five, depending on a bunch of other factors. Also curious to see uh, if anything changes, moving to a new organization, right? You go to the organization where Yadier Molina just spent the last 150 years and you know, you get a you get a fresh start. And I just think the lineup around him is better than what he's had ever since the Cubs started to break up the band, too. So I like the counting stats possibly ticking up again this year for him. Yeah, his framing stats are consistently negative. His rookie year, he was above uh, average. And in 2020, in the shortened season, he was above average. Every other year, it's negative. And in 2018... He must have been the worst framer in baseball because minus 18 runs framing is uh, pretty bad. That's a whole win of runs that he gave up hmm. uh, with his framing. We know maybe that we're headed more towards a challenge system than a full automated balls and strikes. That seems to be what we're hearing on the ground. Um, so his framing will matter. Uh, but having talked to uh, different players and different teams... Teams definitely have different training methods uh, for framing, different philosophies about, you know, the leg out, so this, that, uh, different ways to uh, improve someone's framing. And even when it comes to how they relax uh, before they receive the pitch. Um, and yeah, maybe the Cardinals have that institutional knowledge where uh, they can help. Uh, they can help him not necessarily improve his true talent when it comes to framing, but sort of uh, work around it adjust for it. I wonder if Yadier Molina is going to hang around in the spring this year. Would not surprise me at all if Yadier Molina is just kind of around. <laughs> right? Like why why wouldn't he be? I mean, he's so it's the funny thing about, you know, recently retired baseball players is, you know, they don't know what to do with themselves, you know. There's this uh, there's this little known fact that I mean, it's 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 true in all or in all sort of walks of life. But, you know, there's divorce rates get high among most recently retired players. Uh, that's something that players should be looking out for as they approach it, because you went from being on the road all the time uh, to being home all the time. And that, that I've seen that in my own family. It's like, ah, this dude <laughs> used to be on the road all the time. Now he's now he's backseat driving me. <laughs> Shout out to my mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> but uh uh you know it's just uh it's a he's gonna want to do something with his time i know he has uh like a i think a basketball team that he owns in the dominican or a soccer team mm -hmm. like i know he 
he's uh interested in other sports but i you know when somebody has that much knowledge you can easily become kind of a special assistant either to a gm or that kind of roving assistant uh, man, coach where he doesn't have to be there all the time and he doesn't have to go through the whole season where he's like traveling with a team. But yeah, in spring, he's going to show up and he's going to help and he's going to tell them what he knows and then then he doesn't have to do the rest of it. You know, Barry Bonds was a terrible hitting coach because he didn't want to show up at like, you know, 8 a.m. or whatever after a night game. You know, he wasn't he wasn't he wasn't that guy, you know. Uh, but would you love to have Barry Bonds at spring training talking to your hitters? Yeah. So I, yeah, I would, I would assume Yachty will be there in spring. So we had a, a question from one of our listeners, Michael, and he's pointing to all the great performances up and down the Cardinals lineup last season. You know, Paul Goldschmidt having a 177 WRC plus at age 35. Uh, even Tommy Edmond and Lars Newtbar getting up above league average performances in WRC plus. They were both up like 15 or. 20 points in WRC plus from the previous year, the Pujols renaissance, uh, Nolan Arenado's career year. And Michael's is wondering, is there anything that really explains it across the board? I know we've talked about Goldschmidt and Arenado and the bats they were using and how more or less it, the story from the St. Louis post dispatch about that uh, it had a, a really good assessment because it was, it was Goldschmidt talking about how it's like club fitting in golf and getting the weight within the bat to be distributed in a way that works well for your swing, and that subsequently increases you know, your bat speed, right? So that, to me, is kind of like a satisfactory explanation, at least for those two guys. But you start to think that if the two best hitters on your team are doing something like that, the other guys around them might also try it or do something similar. And I don't know. I, I think that's at least part of where this came from. I know in the first part of the season... There was some unseasonably warm weather in St. Louis when the park factors were were pretty weird too, and then that was further confused by the Pirates being in town all month, which is only you know they were there for like a series, it was a prolonged series. Anyway, what have you seen with the Cardinals that could add to the explanation of like how they actually did this with so many players exceeding expectations at the plate in 2022? It's actually, it's a fascinating story, and I think it has uh, to do with how good teams are good, because good teams are good because they know what they can do uh, when they, when they know, they know what's good, you know, they know what players are good when they want to acquire them, but they also know which players are good in a certain way that they could get them to another level, you know? And so what I see, especially out of Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt, are guys who have traditionally been able to hit for power all around the park right? These are guys who traditionally had opposite field power to some extent, right? So what did both of those guys do last year that they'd never done before in their career that they, they, they did to the most utmost level last year? They pulled fly balls at higher rates than they'd ever pulled fly balls. Both of them set career highs in the pull rate on their fly balls. How many of their fly balls were pulled? Guess what the team did as a whole? St. Louis among all the teams out there in terms of fly balls pulled most of their fly balls. They pulled 29.6% of their fly balls, number one in the big leagues, and by two plus percentage points over the Yankees, who had 27.9, the Orioles, the Rangers, Donnie Ecker is there, and the Braves are top five. The Giants, Donnie Ecker's old team, are sixth. So, you know, the Blue Jays are eighth. The, the twins who are the barrel rate kings, uh, you know, and the fly ball rate kings uh, during the StatCast era, 
they are 10th. So these are teams that prioritize pulling the ball in the air because the pulled barrel is the best outcome in baseball. And so what you have are, you know, some guys who have some hitterish ability, you know, Arenado and Goldschmidt, who've been going the other way that you say, hey, let's do some bat fitting. You've never done bat fitting. Let's do some bat fitting. You know, oh, you haven't prioritized pulling the ball in the air. You know, you haven't prioritized bat speed. Oh, well, come to our organization. We're going to prioritize bat speed. We're going to prioritize pulling the ball in the air. And your natural hitterish abilities are still going to be there. You're still going to be able to go the other way if you need to, if you need to, you know, convince hitters to come inside or whatever it is you're trying to do. So, you know, I think it was a real sort of meshing of scouting, acquisition, player development. And I think it's a real shame. Jeff Albert was their hitting coach. This is all Jeff Albert type stuff, you know? Bat finning is use the best data and tech that's available to you. Pulling the ball in the air is what's the best thing you can do? Pull the ball in the air, you know, pull pull a pull a barrel. Uh, and they they did that. And Jeff Albert, who does all these things, and they they have their career years, and he's his coaching gets through, and you know he's doing the best. Somehow gets hounded out of town, and feels like you know he's being blamed for anything that the Cardinals do, and feels like he needs to do something else, and goes to New York, where people like suppose like you know New York's supposed to be the rabid place where they 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 chew you up, and he chooses to go to New York uh, over St. Louis. So there's something. That's a shame about that. I don't, maybe it was just a play for more money or a, a better title. I mean, kudos to anybody who does this. Baseball is a really tough place. You know, if, you, if you're playing the long game, then it's fine. But at least what Jeff Albert said was, you know, part of it was just, you know, he felt like he was getting, a, 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 you know, too much blame and not enough credit. And he should get a ton of credit because St. Louis did some things under the hood that were amazing last year. Yeah, and you think about new bush stadium and and how it's played and it's it's not as pitcher friendly as a city field but i do think city field presents a pretty unique challenge for any hitting coach trying to unlock as much as you possibly can if you have an optimized approach maybe you got a better chance of beating the park than if you if you don't also the ball change we know the ball is going to be deader oh opposite field homers down 30 percent pulled field pulled homers down 15 percent they were out in front of that they knew that was going to happen what, what happens when you deaden a ball? The, the opposite field homers are worse. Um, one last thing about that park, because we've talked a lot about how that those park factors change and the park might be changing in St. Louis. The uh, I had a really interesting conversation with Ken Arneson, who you know models wind, and he, they model wind in uh, 20 out of 30 parks. And he I think he was optimistic they'd nail down the last 10 at these winter meetings. He said he had a lot of great meetings. And the thing about modeling wind is you have to have 20 sensors in the park, right? You have to, and then he said what's really important that people don't know about uh, or don't think about necessarily is you have to actually build the buildings. You have to make a 3D model of the buildings around the ballpark. And that's because if you have a big building next to the ballpark, buildings have shadows, wind shadows, right? If you think about it, it's like an eddy or whatever. Like the wind goes over the top of the building. There's no wind here. So that creates different wind patterns. And if you have a big building that's next to a ballpark, you you might actually have a wind shadow that covers the whole ballpark. So the wind will just go over the top of the ballpark. And that creates some implications for how the ballpark will play. So as these ballparks like may not even be changing their dimensions, there are buildings going up around them. Kansas City may play the way it does because there are no buildings around it. 
Now they're considering building a new park in Kansas City, and they say that this one's going to be downtown. That one might play way more hitter-friendly just because there's buildings around it. We've seen buildings change the way San Diego plays because there are new condos around that everywhere. Uh, and there's uh, reasons to believe that the new condos changed the way that the Nationals Park played. Because when Nationals Park was built, there was nothing around it. Now there were big condo buildings all around it, creating wind shadows. So uh, I thought that was fascinating. I think if I was an organization, I would be calling Ken right now uh, and having him do the wind modeling. Because it also tells you a little bit about optimal strategy. What should our hitters do? Where do the balls play best in the stadium? Where are the wind? Where is the wind hurting us, and where is it helping us? Yeah, and I think maybe ten years ago or so, my friend Bernie Pleskoff would say that at Coors Field there was always this jet stream in right center field. If you you got the ball to right center, you could hit the ball really far in that part of the ballpark. Obviously, the ball travels everywhere at Coors, but it was just the, the spot that if you, as a left-handed hitter, could drive the ball there, you could be rewarded. Like these kind of micro effects within each park do seem like they're very much worth digging into. Um, by the way, looking at the final count for the baseball savant park factors, using the three-year rolling average, the park factor for City Field, 96. Bush Stadium, 95. Home runs are actually a bit different. City Field has a 96 home run factor. Bush Stadium, 82. So Bush Stadium, actually a little more pitcher-friendly when you account for the homer factor at least looking at these three-year rolling averages. Arnado and Goldschmidt this year. <laughs> nope, it didn't. Uh, it, it just, it, no. They, Any they St. Louis listeners, if, you, if, you, if there are some new buildings around that ballpark, I'd be fascinated to hear about it. Let's get to Mitch Hanniger going to San Francisco. We kept wondering if it would be Aaron Judge or one of the other big free agents. Maybe it's still Carlos Correa, possibly headed to San Francisco. So far, Mitch Hanniger, the big addition aside from Sean Manaya joining the rotation. I think with Hanniger, he's one of those guys that you seem to like a lot year over year. And I'm always kind of afraid because of the combination of injuries he dealt with during his time in Seattle. And thinking about how teams are very careful with players that are corner outfielders that are like 15, 20% better than league average hitters. And these, these this type of player seems like it can be frequently non-tendered and traded. I was surprised that the Giants gave him a three-year deal because he looks so similar to a Hunter Renfro-type player to me in a lot of ways. But what makes Mitch Hanniger different? Why would he potentially kind of stand out and be better off on a long-term deal than some of those other guys that end up getting moved around a lot more? Uh, I mean, it could be a question of of spray charts on how he fits into, uh, you know, like... Compared to Renfro, a lot of it is patience. Hanniger does not uh, traditionally swing at pitches outside the zone, has better walk rates. And that's been a big thorn in Renfro's foot. He's He's been aggressive and sort of powered his way beyond that. But if he was able to take more walks, he'd be a better player. So that's part of why Hanniger has the upside. I'm also looking at uh, the spray charts. And yes, Hanniger uh, does have right center sort of um, uh, he does hit the ball right center a fair amount, um, which is triples alley in uh, San Francisco and a terrible place uh, to, to, to go for it. His homers are mostly pulled uh, down the line and that's going to, that's going to play just fine in San Francisco. So uh, you just a, a question of, will he lose uh, some of those doubles and opposite field homers? But, you know, since 2019, 
I count uh, maybe, I'd call that maybe seven opposite field homers for Mitch Haniger since 2019. Um, and I don't even see that many doubles really out there. Uh, you know, I see maybe five or six opposite field doubles. So I don't think he's risking much in terms of, uh, how his, how this ballpark will play for his skills. He tells me, uh, that last year was a little difficult. It was his, one of his worst years for chase rate, uh, and strikeout rate. And he just said, uh, with the ankle injury, it was just difficult to uh, make these uh, adjustments you have to make on a, on a, on a sort of game-to-game level. Um, and he just didn't feel right all year. So uh, as a projection, 16% better than league average uh, with the bat is, is a comfortably, that's a better than even sort of an average corner outfield bat. Um, and then the, the question is how the defense will play. I'm with you on, on that explanation. I think there are slight differences, but Man, I, I miscalculate those differences relative to how the, the Giants do right now. So maybe that's a blind spot for me. Uh, not well, maybe it's also for, for, the, for the Giants, uh, they would much rather use money than players to acquire players. Yeah, that could be. Money is not really a problem in San Francisco. They have a lot of room between them and the luxury tax. And, and in terms of you know trading away. So you know the types of players it took to get Teoscar Hernandez and uh and hunter renfro were relievers and uh the giants bullpen uh last year was bottom third so you know it's not like they want to uh trade any of their relievers right now so that's that's yeah, they value the that depth too yeah i think that's a good point last player josh bell heads to cleveland he gets a two-year contract and this one seemed like it made a lot of sense from the very beginning i think josh bell to Cleveland made sense as a possible trade addition back during the July. You know, you look back and he ended up in San Diego, of course, but it would have made sense then. We've talked about Bell a lot on this show as someone whose whose power tends to fluctuate quite a bit from year to year, right? We've seen a 37 home run season, of course, that was 2019, the year of the rabbit ball, but back in 2017, he popped 26 homers, popped 27 homers during his full season with the Nationals in 2021. Ended up sitting at 17 homers in 156 games a season ago. Barrel rate, the last few seasons, right between 7 and 8%. At his absolute best, we've seen that 12% season. Again, you're the rabbit ball in 2019. And the other problem, I guess, that we've seen on occasion is inflated ground ball rates. And even when he's going well, it seems like a guy that hits the ball on the ground a little more than you'd like. But good skills overall, right? Draws walks, doesn't strike out a lot, doesn't chase pitches outside the zone. I guess the big question for everybody is how much power are you expecting from Josh Bell in 2023 over what should be a full season now with the Guardians? Yeah, I mean, despite those high ground ball rates, and when he hit 26 homers in 2017, he had a 51% ground ball rate. When he hit 27 in 2021, he had a 54% ground ball rate. So he's still able to hit, you know, 20 plus homers in a given year, uh, even with the high ground ball rate. And this is a very much uh, a Guardians or Rays type hitter where it's a guy who hits the ball hard and has good play to and makes contact, you know, why wouldn't any hitting coach in baseball want to start with that? <laughs> like, you know, a guy who can hit the ball, you know, he's hit the ball 116, 117 in his career. So uh, he obviously has the raw power. And then it's uh, just a question of can, is there a tweak to get him back to the 30 homer guy? And if not, you know, he's still over the last two years has been better than 20% better than league average, you know, 
So maybe he only hits 20 homers next year. He's still going to be a guy who gets on base around 350 on base percentage. Uh, Still going to have like an 800 OPS and still going to be a really good player. I I do wonder what it means uh, for the rest of the Guardians team. Um, I've been, you know, a guy who liked Naylor, uh, Josh Naylor. And then, you know, Josh Naylor has really similar kind of skills in that he, uh, you know, at his best, uh, will make contact, have patience, has hit the ball 115, uh, has had those similar kind of barrel rates and has some problems with the ground ball rate. Like he seems almost duplicitous uh, with Josh Bell, except that Josh Bell is a, uh, a switch hitter. So um, I'm guessing that uh, Bell gets uh, more playing time. Uh, Naylor gets sit against lefty sometimes. Uh, we've already seen a little bit of that. Uh, but they can probably share first and DH, and um, no one uh, becomes a uh, do not drafter uh, because of it. I, I mean, would you? Where do you? Where do you sit on Josh Naylor next year? I think it's fine that that they're both there because they can be first base DH and just kind of mix and match between two spots, right? Yeah. Two two players that are in the lineup every day to share the two spots. I don't know if you look at either one of those guys and say they're a consistently good defender, so. Maybe it's kind of an even split. I think I would rather, I'd rather have Bell because I think Josh Naylor's injury history is is a concern. I think it's his knee, right? That was the main problem. Like that's that's the sort of thing that can always come back around. But the gap between them actually is very small as a hitter. I think the other thing that makes me like Josh Bell a little bit more, just a little more patient. So yeah. I think that keeps him in the lineup a little more often. Whereas. Naylor might end up sitting against some lefties. Six bases last year, though. That's weird. That's that's surprising. We've we've seen even we've seen a little bit of that. I think from Josh Bell in the past too, right? A handful of bags. That was a few years ago now. Just a couple. Yeah, two. He was two for six in 2017 and two for seven in 2018, and then almost stopped running after that. But yeah, I mean Naylor Naylor could be in that area where the the extra five uh, inches means something, and he steals ten bases next year. He, like there is a pathway for Naylor to be worth more valuable than Josh Bell next year. But it's there, but I think as a lefty as opposed to a switch hitter, I think there's a slightly greater chance that Naylor loses some playing time yeah. to a a righty that comes in for those matchups Especially and since then Bell can play Bell's first, still in that lineup. Right. Yeah. Yep. So, slight slight preference for Bell. Home run totals. Who do you think hits more home runs? Is it just Bell because of more playing time or yeah, if we make it more fun? Let's say we give them both the same number of plate appearances. Who hits more homers? <laughs> that's that's more interesting. I think I like Naylor more on a per plate appearance basis for homers. He's slightly lower ground ball rates for sure, uh, and you know age kind of uh, points towards Naylor. All right. Yeah. Oh, a couple yeah. notes on the way out the door too. Shohei Otani. Uh, is on a slightly different schedule plan for pitching. We learned this. It's actually going to be still a six-man rotation. At least that's the plan for now. But the Angels are going to use off days to skip someone else in the rotation. So what happened was last season, Shohei Otani made 16 starts on six-plus days of rest. So when it happens to be like a Thursday off, instead of that thing where you get into the pattern where Otani basically pitches like every Sunday because of the extra day off, Mm -hmm. they're not going to do that anymore which will add a few starts over the course of the year if that plan sticks and if he stays healthy. So there is a slightly higher ceiling on Otani's uh, innings workload and starts total with that 
tweak, even though at this time they're not shifting down to a five-man rotation, which I think Sam Blum wrote about that for the Athletic as maybe a possibility, but because of the World Baseball Classic, it might be something they would change in season, depending mm. on who's healthy and puts, a whole bunch of other things. Put some stress on his fatigue, I mean, to be honest, uh, because we're also talking about the slowest starting pitcher in, in baseball when it comes to tempo and someone mm. who may have to adjust his tempo uh, to, to work with the pitch clock. Now, he might be the best athlete in baseball. I think he is probably. I mean, like how how could you argue against him? He's one of the fastest players. He hits the ball super hard. He pitches throw super hard. <laughs> like he he runs, throws, you know, he's he's the best athlete in baseball. So, you know, maybe with uh, maybe he can pace himself and be not necessarily as stand out on any single place. You know what I'm saying? Like just pace himself a little bit more not throw necessarily as hard, which might mean, you know, giving up a league average home run rate or whatever and having a, you know, 275 ERA or a low threes ERA instead of a, a low twos ERA uh, just to make it through the season um, with these new parameters. But uh, I think he can do it because he's such a great athlete. But I just wanted to add that, you know, along with the pitch clock and this revelation, there is going to be a little bit more stress on him uh, fatigue wise. And probably already doing what he needs to do to be prepared for that. That's probably what's happening this winter, right? Trying to do everything he can. I'm sure he's had conversations with someone in that organization already about the pitch clock and how he's going to be better prepared for it. And I would not bet against Shohei Otani doing anything as far as making an adjustment at this point. I think we've all learned our lesson by now. I'd never bet against Shohei Otani. The question, though, with fatigue is just, when we will see the ramifications and how i don't i don't think it's necessarily if like you know what i mean like i think that either it's maybe someone who uh has a poor end tail to the aging curve right uh at the end of his career just ends up being injury prone or maybe he just has pockets of injuries uh throughout his career that uh teams just have to just have to deal with i mean you're just asking someone to do something that's never been done before you know, and there's got there's gonna be fatigue ramifications for it. Yeah, man, we'll we'll see how it plays out. That is gonna do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. If you would like to get a subscription to the Athletic, two dollars a month for the first year gets you in the door at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. So be sure to get that. If you don't have a subscription already on Twitter, you can find Eno at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. We're back with you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>